Now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lip. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Ah! I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. On this week's podcast, we're just going to talk about temper tantrums. <laughs> with the Ron, with the Democrats, about that stupid stupid ending to that show oh god game of thrones game Nick? Of Thrones. that's what i'm talking about <laughs> war criminals war criminals they love to throw temper tantrums mm-hmm. people tend to die when they throw temper tantrums the american taliban yeah lots of stuff lots of people outraged because mm-hmm. it's so new in 2019 anyways on that note welcome back guys it's barstool politics not to be all in, you know down Two seconds into the podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Nick McGuire, joined as always by Dr. F- uh, I almost said Phil Muck. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be the best combination wow. in the world. Wow. Ooh, Freudian slip there. Um, Dr. Bill Muck from North Central College and Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College. Hi, guys. Hi, Nick. Hi, Nick. Hi. Uh, before we get started, if you guys like the podcast, have questions, comments, beer suggestions, guest suggestions, uh, anything like that. Uh, Want to see what we're up to? Follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, P O L, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Uh, beers that we try, you can find on Untapped on iOS or Android. Just look for Barstool Politics on there. Uh, the podcast, Spot, uh, Spotify, iTunes, uh, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. And uh, we are, for new and returning listeners, uh, we are partnered with uh, Predicted, which is a real money political prediction market. Pretty much a stock market for politics where you can buy or sell shares in future political events. Um, we've been using it to look at uh, Democratic presidential uh, candidates, um, kind of getting the lay of the land and where people are putting their money in terms of decisions on uh, Iran, uh, investigations, indictments. Venezuela. So they've Venezuela. got a new one on how long Maduro is going to uh, stay in power, which is that, that's sort of fascinating. He is hanging on. Oh, yeah. He's just a cockroach, isn't he? Uh, the authoritarians are good. Mm hmm. Um, what's great for you guys, though, uh, if you open up a new account uh, with Predicted, you receive up to a $20 match on your first deposit. So, for example, if you open up a $20 account, Predicted will match that $20, giving you $40 to use. Um, all you have to do is use the promo link, predicted.org slash promo slash barstoolpaul20 uh, to get your free money. Uh, and check it out. It's a lot of fun. It's good stuff. Thank you, Predicted. Yeah. Like I said, lots of little fun temper tantrums and potentially war again yeah. in the Middle East. I, it's been a long time since we've had a good war in the Middle East. <laughs> in the Middle East, man, I miss other, it so much. It feels like yesterday. Shut up. We're done with those. We may add a new one. So, all right. So, for the past two weeks, the U.S. and much of the world has been consumed by the terrifying question of whether the U.S. is going to the, going to war with Iran. The Trump administration claims it has intelligence showing that Iran plans to attack Americans in the Middle East. Iran is telling its proxies to prepare for war, and the la- and last week informed members of the Iran uh, members of the Iranian nuclear accord that Iran will be forced to begin enrichment 
unless they promise to purchase Iranian oil in violation of the American sanctions regime. Combine all this with the rise of the Iran hawks in the Trump administration, like National Security Advisor John Bolton and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, and many have legitimate concerns that some sort of conflict between Washington and Tehran is imminent. While Trump himself has told people, including his acting Secretary of Defense, he doesn't want war, he tweeted on Sunday, quote, if Iran wants to fight, that will be the official end of Iran, and, and warned Officially. Iran to never threaten the United States again. I think that was in response to a Fox News segment, I think. Yes. <laughs> Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh, Phil, while war may not be imminent, we are now walking through a minefield where mistakes or a miscalculation could quickly lead to war. Does this feel like a repeat of, of Iraq in 2003? Um, you know, I, I thought about this a lot today, uh, in, in I think you do too. In, in, in my foreign policy class, we I, we talk about the use of analogies, mm-hmm. um, and and there's some interesting research or discussion about the role of analogies in foreign policy. And so, uh, you know, the lesson of that is that we we can't help but um, the analogies are really useful in understanding events, understanding how decisions are made, how we go down the war, the road to war. Uh, but analogies also have their limitations. And so I, th- this is one where when I think about, is this like Iraq in 2003? Um, my answer is, in some ways, yes. But I think it's dangerous to, to make that tie too strongly. So I do see similarities. I see similarities in that um, it feels a little bit like people within the Trump administration, particularly Bolton and some of the other hawks, have this kind of pre-conclusion um, in place that Iran is uh, that we're destined for war with Iran, that Iran is bad, and and that they are looking for reasons to justify that. So they're they're fitting the evidence around the conclusion they're wanting to draw, which you saw with the Iraq War. Um, and I, I think that that doesn't necessarily mean that they're bad actors. So I think that you know there's we could get into a debate about Dick Cheney and whether he was manipulating information intentionally or whether it was that he really fully believed that Iraq was bad and so was looking for the evidence to back that up. Regardless, um, I think there are similarities in, in that. Um, but I also want to you know, hesitate in that I, I don't think it's exactly the same. Um, I don't know. I, I've been a little bit encouraged by, <laughs> other than the, the tweet, there have been a number of reports that Trump has been hesitant or has mm-hmm. been a little uh, upset by how set on war some of the people around him have been. I, I don't know how much faith to put in that reporting or how, but but that's that seems a little different than than the Iraq War in 2003. Uh, but there's you know there are lots of other ideas and, and analogies and or other theories that we could bring in about diversionary theory of war and stuff like that. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I think we should be concerned mm-hmm. that there are people in positions of power who seem to think that war with Iran is the only way to deal with Iran. It, it is pretty stunning that the president is the voice of restraint here. He, <laughs> he has said, or in reference to Bolton, he said that if it was up to Bolton, he'd, we'd be fighting wars all over the right. place. Yeah. You know, and that which is probably true. <laughs> that's exactly right, and that is one consistency. I think you're right to say that there are dramatic differences between Iraq and, and Iran right now. The one similarity might be the presence of John Bolton. I mean, John Bolton yeah. was a forceful advocate for war in Iraq in 2003, and it appears that behind the scenes he's pushing in much the same way. And I, we can talk about this, but I feel like he's almost trapping the United States and Iran into some type of confrontation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, the president is 
the voice of reason, Nick. I mean, he always is, though. I don't know why this is so surprising to either of you. It's very just, it's wrong. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I understand the analogy. Uh, you know, uh, on, on the surface, it's, you know, a war that's fairly opaque that we don't have a great understanding of what the immediate threat is. Um, underneath that, though, you don't have widespread public support for this. You don't have an administration that's 100% behind this. You don't have a, a defense department that actually wants to do this outside of Bolton and a few other hawks. Um, it, it just it doesn't seem like a large-scale conflict is in the cards. I don't think we have the political will to do it, and I think Trump understands that it would be political suicide to do that. Um, at this, well, what else was I going to say? Something else. Just, Go on. just yeah. to respond to that. I mean, I think this speaks to why the shift in the Trump administration. We, we've talked about the adults in the room a lot on the podcast. The maddest, the I don't know if Tillerson was an adult in the room, but some of the individuals, the generals who brought legitimate restraint to Trump, they're all gone. And now in terms of foreign policy, you've got Mike Pompeo, who's a hawk, and John Bolton, who's a super, super uber hawk. They've got his ear, right? And so there are fewer institutional mechanisms to restrain this. Uh, you know, it's troubling. Well, and I, I think, you know, what you said at the, in the intro to this, which is that uh, as the tensions increase, the, the opportunity for miscalculation or screw-ups or whatever is where, where that comes in. And so I, I think you're right, Nick, in that I don't think that public opinion at all supports this right now. But if you can raise the level, if you're John Bolton and you can escalate tensions and keep tensions at a high level in a way that might provoke a stupid reaction from Iran, or you just keep them at an escalated level until some you know idiot soldier pulls the trigger somewhere, um, then I think that uh, you know what has been shown is that the American population, if U.S. soldiers are attacked, or if there's you know if there's a, a turn in events that uh, public opinion can swing really quickly. I you know this is a, again I don't mean to keep going back to my foreign policy class, but the the Almond Lipman consensus that talks about the the nature of U.S. for uh, sorry U.S. public opinion. Which is that there's not there's not it's not consistent it's it's like it, it swings wildly it's not like based on some underlying uh, theoretical background so it's not that the American people are have this firm grounding in their view on international relations and what role the U.S. should play in the world it's that you know something happens and we react wildly to it and so that's where if you can if you're John Bolton and you want to pick a war if you can escalate tensions and then keep them escalated long enough for something to happen you might get that swing in public opinion that would allow it to happen sure I, I mean there have been a number of instances especially during the last administration that should have provoked some sort of response the Iranians uh, took a number of American sailors prisoner uh, off of the, off of their vessel I believe they correct gave, they gave them back Nick yes they gave them back it was so <laughs> nice of them to do that they were taking boats right up to US military vessels yeah, like they, 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 they were that. they 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 were you know they're testing the waters they were testing the waters at the time I think it does deserve some sort of response to in some way put them back in their place and to see where the boundaries are as much as they're going to test us and kind of probe where where our line is i think it's it's not um unduly uh dangerous to to have a similar response um at the same time you're not going to tell me that iran isn't a 
a huge factor in the, the, the destabilization of the Middle East and the conflicts that not only were involved in, but numerous other countries are involved in countries that are part of the still part of the uh, the iran nuclear deal are involved in the the civil war in yemen and and they're telling their proxies to prepare for war you shouldn't have proxies that you're preparing for war assholes oh everybody's got to have proxies nick <laughs> uh, <laughs> one thing i would say so this idea of a uh, you know something erupting if you look at what the United States is doing to go back to Bolton and others, I think they're I think Bolton intentionally, like you said, Phil, is creating a, a you know, they're calling it the maximum pressure campaign. So there is some lashing out by Iran. You know, the more most recent sanctions. So the United States has has said that nobody around the world can buy Iranian oil. But last year we we gave these waivers. So to eight or nine countries, we said, okay, right. you can still buy the Iranian oil. And Pompeo came out and said, no more waivers. So that means I think it is China, Turkey, India. There's some big countries that are buying Iranian oil, and so they've got to choose: do I do we continue to buy these that Iranian oil, or do we side with the United States? And I think they're likely. You know, the economic interest of engaging the United States is more valuable. That is going to crush. The Iranian economy. If they can't right. sell oil to anybody, that's bad for the economy. It will likely embolden the hardliners in Iran. I mean, that's that's what happens when you destabilize an economic and political system. It's not the moderate voices. It's the more extreme voices. And that just seems like a tinderbox that is going to erupt. And then the United States, I think, to both of your points, can respond and Bolton gets his war. That's fine. But their only response to any of this was to pretty much hold the other members of the nuclear agreement hostage, saying, buy our oil or we're going to start enriching uranium again. Like they, they're, 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 there has to be some sort of middle ground in there. The fact that they go immediately to that is that's in my opinion that's telling in the sense of where their but is the, the 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 um shallowness of their, their foreign policy they're doing that because the united states withdrew from the agreement and said iran you still have to so the united states withdraws from the iran nuclear accord says iran you still have to comply with the accord we're going to reimpose sanctions mm -hmm. which were removed because of the deal that oh, shouldn't have been there in, right. I mean, it's, it, in some ways i mean I, I i think iran is a troublemaking actor but I think the United States is being unreasonable here to say right. it, it, it's like the I, I picture like the, you know, the big brother picking on his little brother, like the, you know, I'm not touching you or whatever. And you just do it like long <laughs> enough until the other one snaps. And it feels like that's what we're doing. Right. We're like we're not doing anything that is in and of itself like a cause of war, but we're like pushing and pushing and pushing until they respond in some way. And then we get get the response that we wanted, which proves us right all along. Well, I mean, what if the, you're picking on the little brother and the little brother's going, all right, I'm stopping while he's stabbing other kids on the playground. Just, you know, I, I they're they're assholes. I'm sorry. Like, I, I as much as I don't like the approach that's being taken, something needs to be done permanently to deter this kind of behavior. And clearly economic sanctions haven't worked. Nobody wants a military intervention. And they're not complying with anything. If you think that they're complying 100% with the nuclear deal, you'll, you're dear, deal, you're you're out of your mind. Well, they're they're complying with the the elements of the. Remember, the deal is just dealing with the nuclear issue, not not their other behavior, I'm, not yes, the missile correct. stuff and all that. I mean, it sounds. They, my understanding is that they are in compliance with the actual agreement itself, which is very narrow. 
in, in, in its own construction. With but, their own inspectors and then clauses that are starting to sunset before the end of the decade. Yeah, well, but here's the other thing. So the Trump administration is is considering like what a new nuclear deal would look like. And it looks like the exact same one that we had on the books, right? So I'm not sure yes, what the U.S. Yes, but it'll have a different name. <laughs> right, right. right. <laughs> so you know, at a bigger level, I, I'm not sure if there's any strategic logic in the president's approach to this. I think Bolton and Pompeo have a clear agenda. Sure. Trump is hoping to use his bombastic rhetoric to bring them to the table. But I, I, other than that, I don't think he has anything he wants. He just wants a deal, right? maybe a new name deal. Like mm-hmm. he, I think he might go for that. It, it, it just feels to me like I, I, I don't have a problem with saying, boy, you know, the, Iran is a bad actor. They're uh, they're you know causing instability in the Middle East. But then that, those critiques also need to be leveled against Saudi Arabia yeah. and other mm-hmm, area, players in the area as Agreed. well. And so that, that's where I come back to. It. it feels like we have just decided that Iran is a bad is the bad guy. And so we're going to attack them. A bit like we decided with, it, you know, Saddam Hussein, right? Saddam Hussein was not a good person, right? Like the, yeah. the, 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 he was, he was not a good actor. He wasn't good for the, the region. Um, but we had this sort of foregone conclusion that he was the reason why there were problems. And if we could just get rid of him, things would be better. And that's what I, that's what worries me about this approach is that it feels like all of the blame for the instability or the problems in the Middle East has been dumped on Iran. And so there's this like convenient if we just uh, deal with Iran things will be better so you're saying a um, wider regional war is what you're saying <laughs> <laughs> all right i just i just wish there were a little more consistency in our in in our, so it's it's not just us public opinion that is uh, sort of inconsistent and ungrounded in in a like an uh, like an overarching theory it feels like with us foreign policy that is also the case yep the, the Trump administration has been arguing that they want a bigger deal, right? So they don't just want something dealing with nuclear, the, the nuclear proliferation issue, but also missiles, like you said, proxy wars in Yemen. They want, they want all of this to come together. Do you think that the, the behavior or how the United States is pursuing this is likely to get Iran to agree to a broader accord? I mean, so this campaign of maximum pressure, economic pressure, political pressure, sanctions, is that is that going to increase the odds that Iran is willing to agree to a deal? Because if not, then then I think we should question the strategy. I, I think that in without any context, I, I could see that strategy. I, I, I could understand why we would go with that strategy. We're going to we're going to increase the pressure on Iran to try to bring them to the table. The part that that doesn't make sense with that strategy is that we had a deal with them that we like abandoned. And so if I'm Iran, the logic of they're putting pressure on me to come to the table, but they didn't honor the last agreement that we uh, jumped into. So why should I think that this is going to be different? That's where I, I don't know how it all how it all plays out. I, You know, all of this is like, again, I don't think that there's I, I think that the older I get, the more. I view everything in sort of shades of gray. I don't think that there's, you know, an all right or an all wrong in this situation. But if I think about it, I, that's where I don't, even if I, even if I don't like Iran and I think they're a bad actor, I'm not sure how our approach is going to get us to the place that we're wanting to get to. I don't know what the alternative, I, right. I you know, yeah. it's, it's, you know, I'm, I'm glad that I'm not the person coming up with Iran policy. Cause I don't know what the, I don't have like a great idea for how to fix it, but. Because I mean, the Obama argument was that we start with a nuclear issue, 
and then you can build from there. And what happened right. is we saw that there wasn't any real building other than on, on, on the issue of the nuclear power. But maybe that's it. That, I, that may be better than where we are right now, where we don't, if they're going to start enriching uranium again. I, yeah, I just, I don't know. My fear is that I don't know if there are other pathways other than some sort of conflict. And it doesn't have to be war, but at some point, is it, you know, is the U.S. bombing Iran is, or is Israel? Like, at some point, Iran may lash out and give Bolton the justification he has wanted. Trump could be trapped by his own rhetoric. Now, you talked about the American public, Phil, being caught up in this. I think Trump could easily, in a real crisis, get caught up in, okay, you know what, I didn't want to do this, but now I have to do it. It just, it really feels like there's a lot of really lousy options, and I'll, and most of them are going to end in some kind of confrontation. Mm-hmm. Why, let me let me take it back a step even even further, which is, why should the U.S. care? Like, why should the U.S. care what's going on with Iran or whether the, Iran has nuclear weapons? Well, I think the I think the United States has an interest in avoiding Iran getting a nuclear weapon. I think that matters, right? Because if, if Iran gets a nuclear weapon, Saudi Arabia is going to want a nuclear weapon. So, so the proliferation of nuclear weapons in the Middle East is a big deal. The other stuff that Iran's up to, the proxy wars, the missile stuff, that seems less... I mean, it's still important, but it's not a a grave strategic interest of the United States. So if, if Iran and Saudi Arabia want to have a, a war in Yemen, it's unfortunate the Yemeni people suffer because of it, but that's a lower level of strategic interest for the United States than them pursuing a nuclear weapon, which is is a high-level interest. Nick, no? I don't necessarily agree yeah. with that. I, I mean, as much as I think that, I, obviously, nuclear prolifera- proliferation, wow, mm-hmm. half a beer in, um, is is terrible, especially in the Middle East. I think that the the destabilization that's been brought about by Shia militias and terrorist organizations that are funded by Iran has caused way more just just strife and, and, and economic um, in the uh, region. In the region yeah. in general. But realistically, if you're talking about from an economic perspective, from a strategic economic mm-hmm. perspective, that to me seems much more immediate and pertinent uh, for a, a globalized economy, which, again, the Middle East tends to kind of be not the center, but a very vital component uh, component or crossroads for that economy. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it, you know, we talk about um, uh, you know, nuclear powers, mutually assured destruction, and having that in your back pocket kind of stops you from acting out in very... Um, uh, dangerous, dangerous, and and <laughs> yes. and um, not odd, but whatever. Irrational just ways. Irrational right? yeah, yeah. Ways. No, God, nuclear weapons. I am struggling today. The, the, the sort of IR literature says that nuclear weapons bring responsibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, wasn't it John Mearsheimer, political scientist at U Chicago, has argued that if you gave Iran a nuclear weapon, they would behave more rationally. Right. Um, right. Yeah. I, I. I just the the number of conflicts uh, outside of the normal theaters of war that we're used to hearing about that we're involved in because mm-hmm. of Iran specifically and their proxies seems to be a more present and pertinent danger right now than them a- potentially achieving a nuclear weapon down the road. We can revisit the nuclear deal and we're going to have to because again these clauses are going to sunset at some point but if there is some sort of agreement that takes into account these other actions that they're doing i think that would be infinitely more beneficial than just focusing on the nuclear deal 
So why are we? I mean, I'm just I'm just being difficult and playing devil's advocate here. Why are we? Um, uh, why do we care what Iran does? I, so th- there's a there's a there's a logical consistency element to this, which is that. Uh, it, it's reasonable to say that Iran is destabilizing their region, causing all, you know, interfering in the politics of their neighbors. But that's not something that matters in general for U.S. foreign policy. So as we look around the world, there are lots of countries who interfere in their neighbors and destabilize their region. And, and we don't give a shit. But for some reason, Iran really, really matters to us. And so why should we even care that that is the case in the Middle East, like, why shouldn't we let Israel and Saudi Arabia and Iran figure this out on their own without uh, that takes out human rights questions, mm-hmm. you know, in Yemen and all sorts of other stuff. But from a just a strategic perspective, I, I, I think that's a great question. And you can't answer it without appreciating the connection the United States has with Saudi Arabia and Israel. Right. Mm-hmm. If, if those were just two other countries, <clears throat> it wouldn't matter. But you've got the strong ties there. And, I, and I, we should note that. The two biggest proponents of the United States engaging in a war with with Iran are, are going to be Saudi Arabia and Israel, right? So it's not just John Bolton pushing this. Saudi Arabia is saying the same thing, Nick. Like, let's take them out. They're, they're a troublemaking regime. Israel is saying the same thing, right? So you've got that those alliances to the United States that are also pushing us towards, towards war with Iran. And there, it just feels like there are fewer levers arguing for dis- restraint right now. I- I think the lesson that, you know, when we talk about analogies, the lesson that I would like people, whether whether people are arguing for or against, you know, conflict or confrontation with Iran, I think the analogy or the lesson to draw from Iraq is not so much the there's there's lessons to be drawn in the build up to the war in Iraq, but it's the after in which like what if if war is the answer then what the hell like what do we do after like what happens with iran afterwards and that that's where it feels like we it's easy to demonize iran and say that you know military conflict is the answer but um yeah it's the i I don't know what 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 happens afterwards is the Mm -hmm. part that i don't i don't know well, and and that, you know, we thought there were simple answers to that, right? We had a we had a simple conclusion about what it would look like in Iraq afterwards, and and you know, even even if Iran is bad, right? If if they deserve it, then I still don't know. In order to justify it, you have to be able to answer that question of what is is what comes after better than what we have currently. I, I mean, I think that's that's a really good point. I, what's in, unique about the Middle East is that there are no. There are no lesser demons at this point. They're very good at, you know, taking material uh, and, and political support that we offer and then turning it around in 20 years and using it against us uh, very, very effectively. Um, you know, it, it, part of me wants to go, well, you know, fund an, an incursion led by the Saudis and, and just kind of prop that up and, and, you know, let's see what happens. But then, you know, we have a, an already hostile regime with their own terrorist organizations that they're funding now holding sway over a larger portion of a very important um, strategic geographical area. I, I, I just, I, I'm just, I'm done with the Middle East. I'm so done with it. <laughs> what, what are the big lessons of 
the rock invasion was a nation how difficult nation building is you're right it was it was right. easy to topple saddam it was much more difficult and in fact we didn't accomplish rebuilding iraq or afghanistan and for me what in some ways is, is astonishing is that the neoconservatives walked in you know after 9-11 they made this argument that america should use its power to to shape <laughs> the world and regime change was a good thing and then iraq implodes in 2005 and 2006 civil war Ultimately, we remove ourselves from the country, saying that's a bad idea, and the neoconservative argument goes away. I mean, realism returns, liberalism returns, but there's nobody's talking about neoconservatism anymore until John Bolton brings it <laughs> right. back. Mm -hmm. Ten years, right? right. And, and so, part of me thinks, the, why did the idea return? Not because the idea itself was good. The idea returned because nobody of sound mind wanted to serve in a Trump foreign policy administration. They all ran for the hills. You know, the good people were there initially and then they left and nobody else wanted to. And then John Bolton raises his hand and Trump has to bring him in. Remember, Trump didn't initially want him because of the mustache. He thought it didn't look the part. That's legit. He, he really didn't. So, so I, you know, the reason this idea is back is because Trump can't find anybody who's legitimately qualified, and Bolton will do the job, but he brings baggage with him. I mean, it, it's just sort of stunning. Mm -hmm. it, it really is amazing to me how uh, there's no – there's really no final discrediting in American politics. Yeah. I, I, we've talked about this before with the Nixon White House and the people close to Nixon who you, you would have thought after they go to prison or they're brought up, you know, after all the stuff that comes out that they're done, right? They go off and have a good life, but they're done in politics and how many of them have reemerged. Yeah. And this is another example where, you know, your people, people are, are human. They make mistakes. So, uh, you know, I, they're, but the idea that even if you want to sort of forgive the people around George Bush for what happened in Iraq, uh, to, to chalk it up as, as a mistake or whatever, that's different from saying 10 years later, we're going to put them back in charge yes. of U.S. Yes. foreign policy. Yes. Like the fact that John Bolton is still is is a, a part of or is a driving force in U.S. foreign policy is kind of mind boggling. to Yes, me. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's there it, are lots of really smart people who know foreign policy other than John Bolton that could be in this position. No, they're yeah, conservatives. They're, they're right? all gone. There are a lot of really smart <laughs> conservatives who could Absolutely. be in. But they don't want to serve in a Trump administration, so you're left with those who are willing to do it. And Bolton is, you know, he's committed. Do you think he hangs on? Yes. Unless he... The big danger for Bolton long-term is if he overshadows Trump. Mm. If he becomes the story, yeah. he'll be gone. But he's been smart enough to be second fiddle. You know, last week he was getting himself in a bit of trouble, but I bet he'll be... He'll be doing everything the president wants to hear, mm -hmm. and he'll stick around for a while. Well, and he's he's really smart and strategic too. Yes. That, that's the thing. Like, I think he's wrong, but he's smart. Yes, right? mm -hmm. and so, and that's where I that's where what we going back to what we began this conversation with that makes me nervous, which is that I don't put it past him. I, I think that he is smart enough to be able to escalate tensions, hoping to create a situation that leads to the outcome that he wants. And then we essentially sleepwalk into a conflict with Iran. Yep. I, yeah. I think the odds are still it's still more likely that there isn't going to be war, but they've gone up dramatically, where the, the chance of war has gone up significantly. Mm -hmm. Ooh, this was a good discussion, Nick. I miss yeah. doing yeah. foreign policy yeah, stuff for good. big topics. Well, should we talk beer? Hell yeah. All right, Phil. You've got, look, it looks like a golden ale there. What, what are you drinking? I'm drinking a Czech-style Pilsner. This is from uh, a Schilling Beer Company. I've, I've mentioned them a number of times lately. They're out of Littleton, New Hampshire. 
I, they, I just continue to be impressed with the beers they make. This is uh, called Alexander. Um, there is no E at the end. It's A-L-E-X-A-N-D-R. That's creative, mm. Bill. <laughs> um, <laughs> Alexander is their Czech style pilsner. And um, yeah, you know, I, we talk, I mentioned last week that uh, it feels like sometimes I, I really like a, like a lager, a pilsner. Um, but sometimes they, I don't know, they, they don't necessarily stand out. Um, I, I don't exactly know how to describe this. Um, it's really good. It, it takes me back to like, I've, you know, it doesn't taste like it's not a crappy Pilsner. It's not a crappy <laughs> lager. Like drinking this, it, it tastes like when I've been in central and Eastern Europe and I've had a, you know, a, 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 a European style Pilsner. Um, at a brewery, it, it, it's really nice. It's malty. It's good. I, w- I would gladly drink more of these. It's not. It doesn't have that kind of really strong signature flavor like an like an IPA, but it's it's a good beer. All right, Nick. What are we having? We are having a uh, strawberry summer from a Hailstorm Brewing Company out of uh, Tinley Park, not far from here uh, in Illinois, uh, which is strawberry and lemon. Uh, it's a, a strawberry lemon Kolsch. Um, sounds terrible. It's, mm, <laughs> I, I'm not. I'm not going to say it's terrible. It's very, very summery. Yes. It's almost. It's almost cider like. Yes. Um. I. I like. I didn't get the Kolsch thing. It says it should be sweet. Uh. I'm getting more. Um. Very tart. Yes. It says it should be malty. I'm getting more bitter. Um. <laughs> <laughs> it says it should be light. It's definitely light. So one for three ain't bad. Um. I could see somebody really liking this beer. And it's growing on me. It's, yeah. But it is it is a very distinct taste. It is the tartness. There's a little bit of strawberry, a lot more lemon. Lots um, and lots of yeah. Lemon. But for somebody who is looking for that kind of beer, and that that audience is out there, yeah, this is pretty good. But yeah. it is not our usual style. No, yeah. it's it's very light. It's very effervescent. Yeah. It's very you know ninety degrees out Memorial yeah. Day kind of thing and. You need something yep. other than you know the motor oil that we normally drink. Right. Well, it is 80, 80 out today, Nick. So it we had is. to go with something summery. So. Yes. Um, if you guys uh, want to check out all the beers that we have on the podcast, download Untapped or on iOS or Android. Uh, look for Barstool Politics. Uh, you'll find all of our uh, beer reviews on there. Sounds good. Speed round, Nick. Yes. Game of Thrones at the end of the speed round. The Stay last Game of Thrones tuned. thing. Yes. All right, so a growing number of House Democrats are impatient and publicly calling for a formal inquiry into President Trump's impeachment. Nancy Pelosi and other party leaders have cautioned against jumping too quickly into impeachment and have argued for following a more methodical course of investigation and litigation. Yet after repeated stonewalling from the Trump administration, most notably the no-show of former White House counsel Don McGahn this week at a House hearing and the uncertain prospect of public testimony from Robert Mueller, Some Democrats are growing frustrated. Just this week, 25 House Democrats have publicly called for an impeachment inquiry. Democrats got some support for this effort when Justin Amash, a five-year representative from Michigan, (coughs) (laughs) became the first Republican in Congress to call for the impeachment of the president. Amash argued that Mr. Trump's conduct had met the constitutional standard for impeachment and that William Barr, the attorney general, had misled the public about specific about the special counsel's findings over the president's apparent high crimes and misdemeanors. Phil, dramatic uh, developments. What, what do you make of all of this? Uh, a couple of points to 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 start with and then you can kind of run with it. 
Um, uh, one of which is that we talked about last week or the week before that it feels a little bit like, uh, you know, the Trump administration has their their finger in the holes in the dam, right? Um, and that it, it it this just it continues to build on that. It feels like uh, they're doing okay at holding this off for the time being, but it feels like this can't go on all that long. Um, but we also talked about in the past how the Democrats are really able to screw things up. And so <laughs> yes. um, that's the other part of this is that I, I, I'm interested to hear what you think. There's part of me that, that thinks that there has, there have been times in the past that Nancy Pelosi has shown um, she's, she's as, as hated as she is on, on the right. She's been pretty politically savvy about moving legislation forward, about sort of choosing how to go about stuff. Um, having said that, I don't, I don't, I don't understand her approach at this point. Um, it does seem like that the Democrats continue to wait for public opinion to swing towards impeachment before they move forward, and that seems to miss out on the fact that the Democratic Party should be shaping public opinion on this. The fact that a Republican congressman, that Justin Amash, who, who I don't agree with, but I have a lot of respect for, I, I, he's he's a really interesting guy. Um, the fact that he's out ahead of the Republican Party, I mean, the Democratic Party leadership on this should be shameful to the Democratic Party. Like that, that's, he's making compelling, really interesting arguments for why this is necessary. And, uh, you know, it's good that he's doing that, but the Democrats should absolutely be doing that. It shouldn't be low ranking Democrats. It should be that the Democratic Party should have this united front moving forward on this. And it just, I don't know, it, it seems like this is a, maybe a missed opportunity for the Democrats. I, I could be wrong. There's a strategic, if they were to go with impeachment, all the stonewalling of Trump becomes much more difficult because what he's doing is he's pursuing things through litigation and it's spread out all over the place. So the Democrats have multiple different investigations going. If you move to impeachment, they all become centered in, the, uh, in, in one committee and then all of those subpoenas become much more powerful. So Trump can ignore some subpoenas or just say I'm not going to respond to those, but an impeachment subpoena, right? You're saying that we're, we're trying to determine whether the president should stay in power. Man, you, you can move things much more quickly. So if pace is an issue, you know, moving towards impeachment would, would speed things up. Politically, it's a different question. I, I, so to, I, I, you haven't had a chance to no, talk, Nick. But I, so Nancy Pelosi today said, you know, there was this meeting with uh, Pelosi and Schumer and Trump, and it ended very quickly. After three minutes. Because... <laughs> right, because can go look at my sign. Uh, Trump basically said that if you don't end the investigation, we're not going to talk about, uh, we're not going to have a legislative agenda together. Um, that's not the point, though. Nancy Pelosi, after that, or, or part of the reason why he walked out is that Nancy Pelosi accused him of engaging in a cover-up. I, I don't, this is where I don't understand what, like, what do you think her her approach is? To, to be, like, hesitant, we're not going to move towards impeachment yet, but then to openly accuse him of a cover-up seems contradictory. Yes. Is Which of those do you buy into more? Is she really ready to move forward on impeachment, but she's trying to put forth this public persona that we're engaged, we're hesitant, we're not going to make, we don't have you know foregone conclusions? Or is that like an outlier, that response that you're engaged in a cover-up? Well, I mean, being senile isn't necessarily a strategy. <laughs> so, I'm, you know, we can throw that into the mix. Um, Are you I, talking about Pelosi or Trump? You, you know who <laughs> I'm Two things can about. be true. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, from a, from a strategic perspective at this point, I, I don't know. I think if it was anybody else besides her, this would be moving forward. I think that she's trying to 
grapple with the long-term implications of having a new wing of her party that is infinitely more progressive than has ever been in, in Congress previously and trying to bring them into a more unified front that appears to be uh, you know, very informed and very methodical and is looking to public opinion to kind of make their decisions. But like you said, at this point, they should be shaping public opinion based on their actions. Um, and I, I think that we talked about it previously, uh, or I talked about it previously, the Trump administration is not unaware of you know, the insurrection in, in the opposing party. And I think they, if they hang on long enough, this is not, this isn't just going to go away. This is going to continue to become this, this flashpoint within the Democratic Party that's going to help splinter it even further prior to 2020. Um, if they can keep Pelosi doing what she's doing right now and keep public opinion just below the margin of being in favor of impeachment, while also having lunatics on the far left screaming for impeachment, I think that's infinitely more effective than, oh. I, I, you know, than, than kind of going at them and, and sure. I lost my train of thought. Well, as, as I think about this, and you're, I think you're, you're both right that shaping public opinion is critical here. It's hard for the Democrats to do that for a number of reasons, one of which is that this report, the Mueller report, is damning if you've read the 400 pages. You know, less than what, like 1% of the American public has read it. So if that's the case, then it has to be a narrative. And, and we can't forget that Bill Barr, in his initial description of, you know, no, no collusion, no obstruction, that set the agenda. And the president is very good about repeating that. And today, after his death, it's on his sign. He's, it's on a sign. <laughs> and so the American public, who doesn't have a ton of time to follow this closely, We'll look at that and say, hey, it's not, you know, Bill Barr, the attorney general, said no, no collusion, uh, no obstruction, right? That, that narrative is out there. So the Democrats have to find another way to do this. I think if you could have gotten Don McGahn to testify and have him talk about that, that's a winner. Or if you get Robert Mueller to testify. But Trump is smart to say, I don't want those individuals doing so because that gives sound bites. I think if, if those are out there, if Don McGahn is talking about what the president is doing, if Robert Mueller is saying this method met the, you know, the uh, the definition of obstruction, but I couldn't charge, that changes everything. I, I think the Democrats need something more to tip for for a tipping point. But, but that's a, that's why you have the hearings, right? I mean, how are you? How- like, so Americans haven't read the Mueller report. That's why you have hearings. You bring this up. Like, you know, mm-hmm. when Nixon, when the Nixon hearings occurred, America was like massively tuned in to stuff that they like. They became aware of the crazy details of Watergate in ways that they never would have before. That's a good point. Th- this fear that Democrats have that some, I mean, they seem to be worried about how Trump's going to use this against them. He's going to use this against them regardless. He's going to claim that this was a witch hunt. He already is. He has for two years. He's going to do that no matter what. He's going to claim that the Democrats had their mind up and were out to get him from the beginning, regardless of what they do. Trump supporters are going to believe that, regardless of what Democrats do. So Democrats, like this is where you take action and quit worrying about what Republicans or what Trump supporters or what people who probably aren't going to vote Democrat anyway do. And, and you, when you have these hearings, you, that's how you do this. You move forward, you challenge him. It's going to lead Trump to act more, you know, outlandishly in response, which helps you make the argument and you bring people in and you have this testimony and it becomes newsworthy and it becomes, you know, that's how people become aware. This idea that 
we're going to wait until somehow people become magically aware of the Mueller report and then we'll begin impeachment proceedings. That's the whole point of impeachment proceedings in my mind is uh, forget impeachment proceedings about hearings and investigations and moving forward. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I I mean, I I don't necessarily disagree with that. I feel like in comparison to Watergate, I, I think most of the information, regardless of whether people have read the Mueller report or not, the information, most of it has been out there. We've talked about mm-hmm. all of the information that's been verified through, um, you know, the the media, the New York Times, the Washington Post. It's it's out there, and people are aware of a lot of the facts. Whether people have read the entire report or not, I think is a relatively moot point. I think the bigger concern is that, like you said, most people, especially, um, I, I, I mean, from the Republican perspective, most people have made up their mind. From the Democratic perspective, I would say most people made up their mind about that as well. The issue is that that fraction that is going to depend on the 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 method of inquiry i guess and people who are swayed by i I don't even know if it's new information but how the process itself unfolds and how people present themselves um yeah i I realistically think from again from a, a politically strategic perspective the democrats should have the upper hand here they're not playing their cards right which is you know it's just what they do. Matt, was it Nancy Pelosi? We should move on. But real, last was it this week or last week? Said something about how so how frustrated she was that people weren't paying attention to what the Democrats are doing legislatively. And, I, and while I get that, it also seems like I understand you passed a health care bill. I understand you you passed an equality bill, and that's great. But you know that's not going to actually be signed. No. So focus on the issue at hand. Uh, it's More than that, that stuff isn't in the media and nobody gives a shit because everything else you're putting out there is related to impeachment and Trump. I, like I if you had told me that they were they that there were things being passed right now mm-hmm. outside of this whole mess, I would bet 99% of people in the country have no idea that any of that is going yeah. on. You can't right. blame people for that because there's no information out there. People don't have time to yeah. to look at that shit uh, right. on top of all of the other, you know, this dumpster fire circus that you have going on. So. Yes, I, I still th- I, yeah, and I, I still think that the for the Democrats, the Mueller report has been large, or the this Trump thing has been kind of a he said she said sort of thing, and and that's where I think the hearings become useful because if you bring a whole bunch of people in to testify on national TV and you have Robert Mueller testify and you have Donald Trump Jr. testify, people are, you know, not everyone, but people are generally smart enough to figure out that there's a difference in that type of testimony yes. and, and the sense that comes out of that. And that, that's where, you know, you you take the information in their Mueller report and you, you hammer it home. You make people pay attention to it. And that's the Democrats are again as we've talked about before scared of their own yeah. shadow here like just just be a leader be do something oh, <laughs> like, god yeah. bless them all right let's talk <laughs> war criminals uh so president trump has indicated that he's considering pardons for several american military members accused or convicted of war crimes including high profile cases of murder attempted murder and desecration of a corpse uh, according to uh, two U.S. officials, the official said that the Trump administration had made expedited requests for this week uh, this week for paperwork needed to pardon the troops on or around Memorial Day. One request is for Special Operations uh, Chief Edgar Gallagher of the Navy SEALs, who is scheduled to stand trial in the coming weeks on charges of shooting unarmed civilians and killing an enemy captive with a knife while deployed in Iraq. 
pardoning multiple accused and convicted war criminals at once, including some who have not yet gone to trial, has not been done in recent history. Many, including many uh, high-ranking military officials, have expressed concern that this would erode the legitimacy of the military law and undercut good order and discipline in the ranks. Uh, apparently, the president was responding to a months-long lobbying campaign by Pete Hegseth, a Fox & Friends co-host and an informal advisor of the president. Phil, the president's constitutional pardon power is absolute, but this would be arguably one of the most controversial uses of that power in decades. What's, what's, this, seems, this seems bizarre. Thoughts? <laughs> um, I don't, so I don't know what is motivating this. Uh, this... Uh... I, I, I don't, maybe, maybe listeners will be surprised by this, but I, I try to like kind of weigh things mm -hmm. and, and be understand both sides of this. I'll, I'll be pretty strongly one-sided on this. This is bullshit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this, this is, I don't, I mean, this is, this really pisses me off. This is, I mean, yeah. the, the idea that the, the stories that have come out about the types of people that some of the people that he's looking at pardoning are not, these are not, I think we have this perception of, you know, the, the America kind of soldiers of these great, you know, war, we have this kind of Rambo perception of soldiers. Soldiers get pissed at this too, right? Like some of these soldiers who have, some of the people who have been accused, like people in their, you know, their, in their companies and whatnot were altering their sites, trying to prevent them from shooting because they were so regularly killing civilians um this this just undermines the sort of hard honorable work that so many of our soldiers do who who try to do this right right who who believe that um there is a you know a moral right and wrong as you go into war this endangers our soldiers right if you if you basically say that the rules don't matter if you violate the rules the president's just going to pardon you anyway and so you won't face any repercussions that throws the rules of war out and that might seem, you know, great if you're just viewing this from the American perspective, but American soldiers pay the price for that as well. Mm -hmm. um, the idea that this is happening on Memorial Day weekend is, is I think Trump thinks it as, uh, sees it as a, uh, you know, some sort of symbolic thing that makes it all the worse for me. That I, he this, cares this about really, the troops. Yeah. Yeah. This pisses me off, but I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what you, you two can talk about it some as well. I Nick? guess. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I tend to agree. I, I do think that um, over the past couple decades, there have been a handful of cases where soldiers have kind of been fed to, you know, the, the political dogs uh, to kind of uh, placate, um, you know, other parties in, in theaters of war um, for political reasons. Uh, and that is absolutely not fair. And those things should be looked into. These particular people... I don't really find a reason to do that. Uh, on top of that, I, I don't using your the the ability to pardon someone for a uh, some sort of military intervention or or event. Just uh, like you said, Phil, circumvents the the process that you put in place to deal with these situations. Um, I, I there's just there's no there's no good reason to do this other than having it be you know a very rah-rah, patriotic, feel-good story without any substance to it whatsoever. And listeners should actually go and read about some of these stories of the individuals who are being charged. This is not, like you said, it's not some like misunderstanding. You know, the one individual killed dozens of unarmed Iraqis, uh, you know, urinating on the corpses of, of dead individuals. This is terrible stuff. And 
there's been legitimate pushback from the military on this. And I'm guessing Trump is getting pushback from within the administration as well, saying this is not a good idea. That doesn't mean he won't do it, though. Uh, this is probably a trial balloon. He's throwing it out there to see what the reaction is. I hope the dramatic you know, antagonism against this will, will cause him to go another direction. Like you feel, this is, this is awful. This is a no brainer that he should not do this. And I don't know. I, I, it's, it's demoralizing if he does, you know, it's just, oh, cause for a small political win, not even a political win to just to say that he's, he's caring about the troops and, oh, it's, this is one of the worst. It's, I mean, I, I understand people who, you know, there, there are arguments about how war is hell, right? That, that, that if you haven't experienced this, you can't, you can't understand what it's like. And it, but, but the problem with that is that that's a, that's a really steep, really slippery slope. If, if war is hell and therefore, you know, whatever you need to do in war is acceptable, that takes us to a really awful place really quick. And I don't think that's a place that, that people want to go, right? Even people who, who want to support soldiers and and trust that they're on the side of good, right? That the U.S. is on the, even if you think the U.S. is on the right side of war, I don't think I think that because of that, because you value the lives and and the the honor of American soldiers, you don't want to go down that very quick slippery slope, which is that once you're in war, anything goes and anything can happen to anyone, and we're not going to be critical of it. And that that's the that's the part that that I come back around to. There has to be some at some point where you say this is unacceptable even in something as awful as war. Mm -hmm. There has to be, there's a real reason we have rules of war. And and the United States has a military code of justice. If, if you just throw that out, it's, I don't know, it's anarchy, Nick. It's bad. It's bad. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) All right. Let's let's talk treason. President Trump issued a grave warning Friday to those who allegedly spied on his 2016 campaign, calling their actions treason and saying long jail sentences are in order. Trump tweeted, my campaign for president was conclusively spied on. Nothing like this has ever happened in American politics. A really bad situation. Treason means long jail sentences, and this was treason. Treason, Nick. In doing so, Trump is resurrecting claims that he first made in March of 2017 about the Obama administration spying on his campaign. Accusations which are gaining some traction becomes because Trump's new best friend, Attorney General Barr, has taken steps to review the origins of the Russia probe, including the appointment of a senior prosecutor to examine the roles of the FBI and the CIA. At a Senate hearing earlier this month, FBI Director Christopher Wray said he had not seen any evidence that illegal surveillance was conducted on individuals associated with the Trump campaign. He also said spying was not a term he would use. Trump subsequently called Wray's testimony ridiculous. Uh, it is clear Trump is attempting to create a narrative that the entire investigation stemmed from anti-Trump bias and that those treasonous actors should pay for their crimes. Phil, I have to admit, this tactic by the president terrifies me. Calling for impeachment of career bureaucrats because they did their job is straight out of the tin pot dictator playbook. Please tell me I'm overreacting, Phil. You're not overreacting. No. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, so the, I guess to, to sort of think of both sides of this, there, there should be, if, if people in government abuse their power, if people within the FBI were to abuse their position of power and to surveil someone just because they didn't agree with their politics, which is what Trump is accusing them of, right? That essentially, people within the FBI didn't like Trump, and so they were out to get him. 
that's that's bad right and and they people should pay a price for that um that's not what has happened and ironically that is exactly what trump is doing right so his complaint is that people within the fbi were targeting trump because of political reasons but then what he's doing is turning around and saying he you know at the at a rally this week he talked about investigating joe biden and investigating people this is when he was talking about treason and the crowd is you know chanting lock them up lock them up that that is politically motivated investigation and po- politically motivated attacks which is the exact thing that he is complaining about so he he's not wrong to complain if if this were actually happening if people within the fbi were using the power of the fbi to try to bring down Trump because they just disagreed with him politically, then yes, they should face some sort of uh, repercussions, right? Um, that's not, that is different from treason. That is not treason. You shouldn't be charged with treason for that. You should certainly face some repercussions. But then to that, again, the, the, the logical extent of that is that is exactly what he is doing. For a president, president to openly be calling for investigations into his political rivals, and for the attorney general to be moving forward with that is deeply it, it, it is it, it should I'm not saying that anything will come of that, but just that movement is concerning. That should be of concern. to us. So, I, I mean, would um, would a wider investigation of political influence within the intelligence community in general be more applicable in this situ- situation, be more palatable? as opposed to specifically targeting individuals or bringing up individuals? I, I mean, so, I, I personally think regardless of what end of the political spectrum you're on, there is a significant amount of political influence within any governmental institution, especially in the intelligence community. Um, I, I, I don't necessarily having or don't necessarily have an issue with kind of weeding that out um and i think it would have been politically savvy of him to be a little bit more broad about what he was saying instead of saying that people were treasonous i I mean yeah what what is the the proper way to go about this from the trump administration's campaign or uh, or, um perspective well there's there's a couple ways so the inspector there already was an inspector general looking into this and is continuing Mm -hmm. to do so so if i'm if you really care about finding out the information and i think we should right i don't have a problem with an inspector general looking into this and if he finds that individuals were motivated by political bias or whatever it is that's important and that's that should that should matter And, and but we should have waited for that right what Barr is doing does seem to be playing politics the fact that he's using the term spying when he knows better right that that suggests that he might have a political motivation the other thing i would point out is that we're talking about it's not just i mean trump does target political appointees but this feels like he's targeting the bureaucracy he's targeting the fbi uh, and this idea that there was political bias at the FBI, you know, James Comey is a lifelong, was a lifelong Republican who was leading this. Uh, he was the one who had to sign off on this. All of these reviews um, would ultimately go to the Gang of Eight, right? So, so Democrats and Republicans in the Congress saw what was done. They didn't raise a stink about this. Um, when uh, Rosenstein took over as the acting Attorney General, he continued to sign off at least once on the uh, the surveillance of Carter Page, right? So, 
there are multiple Republicans who have who've said what was going on was okay and legitimate. And, and so if that's the case, it's hard for me to see some Democratic liberal bias here. This feels like bureaucrats who are doing the job, and maybe there should be critique of that, but I don't know. We'll wait for the report, but this this is this is concerning. Yeah, there, I mean, there, there. Yes, there. I don't want to pretend that there's not bias in law enforcement or in the CIA or FBI, but the, I think that overall, it's not a liberal bias that's in the FBI, right? Uh, mm-hmm. For the for the most part, <clears throat> um, historically, right? I mean, this is you know, this is the the institution that worked against the. Uh, against communism and against the civil rights movement and all sorts of other stuff. So, Great um, Americans. Not the civil and, rights and thing, think, but the communism yeah, thing. I think, should there be an investigation, I, I, like you, Bill, don't necessarily have a problem with there being an investigation. That investigation should not be initiated by the president, mm-hmm. right? There, There is a system in place in which if people within the FBI or other in, in other institutions think that there is a warranted, you know, issue here, then 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 great. But when you have the president basically accusing his political rivals or people who are critical of him of treason and then asking the attorney general to look into it, that's where it becomes concerning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, let's move on. So on Thursday, the American Taliban, John Walker Lind, is scheduled to leave a federal prison in Terre Haute, Indiana, released on probation after serving 17 years, which sort of surprised me. That this was 17 years ago he was put in jail. Um, like it was yesterday. I know, 17 <laughs> years of a 20-year sentence uh, for providing support for the Taliban. As a U.S. citizen, Lind became among the most visible of all the Taliban fighters taken into custody in the aftermath of the September 11th attacks. His journey took him to Pakistan in the year 2000 and later to Afghanistan, where he spent time at an al-Qaeda training camp and as a Taliban volunteer. The government has characterized Mr. Lin in recent years as still holding on to extremist views, and his release has now brought objections from many, including a bipartisan team of U.S. senators, asking the Trump administration why the convicted terrorist is getting an early release and whether he can be safely reintegrated into society without some kind of formal government program for rehabilitating former jihadists. Lind is just one of well over 100 terrorist offenders who are scheduled to complete their sentences and be released from the U.S. federal prisons over the next few years. Phil, a few weeks back, we talked about the judicial process at Gitmo, but this is an entirely different animal. Uh, What's your thoughts on the American Taliban walking the streets, maybe the streets of New Hampshire? Because we don't know where he's going. I can only assume he'd want to go to New Hampshire. (laughs) I uh, this is a hard one for me. Mm-hmm. Like he he sort of personifies. Uh, it, it's easy to sort of you know lump onto him all of this. He's a traitor. He you know all of this stuff, and th- that he should basically rot in prison forever. Um, at the same time, I if I remember correctly, he was he he joined up with the Taliban and with Al Qaeda or whatever before the U.S. declared war on Afghanistan. And was at the time that he was apprehended unaware that the U.S. had declared war on Afghanistan. So that doesn't mean that he's like a, like a reasonable. So you're saying person. he's clean. <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't make him uh, necessarily treasonous in the way that we tend to think of him. Right. He didn't sign up to fight the U.S. It was sort of how it played out. I don't know. I mean, he's easy to to dislike, right, and to not feel sympathy for. But at the same time, the 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 whole nature of our criminal justice system is that you are sentenced to a period of time, you serve a, serve that sentence, and then you are 
released. And I, I, I don't, I tend to think that if he's done the time sentence to him, then he is entitled as an American citizen to be released from prison. And if he is extreme, I, I, I have no doubt whatsoever that the U.S. government is going to continue to monitor him. <laughs> oh, yeah. And surveil him, right? He's on a list. <laughs> and, and, and he will end up back in prison if he goes down that route. But if he doesn't, this is the whole idea of you, you serve your time and then you have a chance to sort of re, you know, to prove yourself and whether he does that or not i don't know i am i being too optimistic and naive maybe but but i think i think you're right that that has to be the real uh, the the way the legal system works part of his parole nick is he's banned from owning a web capable device or going online at all love it so if he wow, goes online yeah well, you, i guess you could do anything i with mean parole. they had to have done something you yeah. know if that was what Late nineties, early two thousands, he was doing something. He got something done. So if he, if he orders, the talent got stuff done. Right. How do you order stuff? If he signs up for an email account. He's back in prison. Mm, okay. Yeah. I, uh, as much as I, 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 I agree, that should be the system. Ideally, it's not like he once he found out that the U.S. was at war with Afghanistan, he said, "Oh shit, I need to go turn myself in immediately." Um, I. I I think this is a different. This is a different standard. We talked, yeah, like you said, we talked about Gitmo previously, uh, and the inmates there, and, and the care that uh, that they're they're getting from the U.S. government. I I just I don't I just don't think they should be released. It's curious that he was released early. Yes, that that <laughs> so the legal really system surprises says, me. You served most of your time. Good behavior. Yeah. Other than that, you're still yeah, apparently he still has these extremist views and was apparently sharing them online, which is a little surprising that that wouldn't you know disqualify you for early release. He was doing it while he was in prison yeah. and sharing yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. They should yeah. fry him. Fuck him. <laughs> All right. I'm well, done with this conversation you, now. You, you're allowed to have extremist views. You just can't act upon them, right? So, what? I mean, you can't charge him just because he's got ideas in his head, Nick. He was a what combatant was in, in a theater of war. Yes. That, sorry, you're he, acting on it. He doesn't give up his free speech rights, though. <laughs> what, what, did, what was he actually convicted of? Was it... Ooh. Was it... It was... I think it was treason, right? I mean, because he was considered part of an organization that was fighting the United States. I don't have it with me. I'm not sure, but uh, whether that was part of the charge or not. Um, So a couple things that occur to me. One is that the legal system works the way it does. And if he is, uh, you know, up for early release, that's fine. I'm sure the government is watching him really, really closely. I do think this is a... This should move the government to think about how do you reintegrate former jihadist right i mean that's that's a big deal there's i think there's a hundred that are coming out soon and but there's 346 convicted jihadist terrorists in the united states in federal prisons since 9 11 mm-hmm. so there's going to be a lot more that are coming so you should probably have some sort of rehabilitation reintegration system so that these individuals aren't just dropped and you know well i, I think there is there there are processes like that especially with with younger people who are influenced by this before they have a, a yeah. really good grasp of how the world functions right. and are, are taken advantage of if you're in prison and you're still spouting this shit I, I like i'm sorry like you should stay there forever at that point not forever Nick. yes I mean, it's got- forever <laughs> if you're acting upon it so if the minute he rejoins up with the taliban or whatever then you could but 
the you can't charge somebody just for having ideas. Why? We do it all the time. No, no, what are you talking it's about? Not, it's not right. <laughs> it's not right, Nick. Do you do you want to know what he was convicted? Yeah, yeah. What he pled to. So he was accused of conspiracy to murder U.S. citizens. Hmm. So the conspiracy charges are like he's just associated with a group. It's a weird. Uh, two counts of providing material support and resources to terrorist organizations. One count of supplying services to the Taliban. Conspiracy to contribute services to Al Qaeda. Contributing mm. services to Al Qaeda. Conspiracy to supply services to the Taliban. And using and carrying ar- firearms and destructive devices during crimes of violence. So he ended up pleading guilty to uh, supplying services to the Taliban and carrying an explosive during the commission of a felony. Those were the two things that he was convicted of. You've been years. convicted at least one of those. Well, I haven't been convicted, but I've done I've done at least one of those. <laughs> That's interesting. So they could have charged him with more. They charged him with a number of things, and then he pled out to the two. Oh, but it wasn't, I see. It wasn't treason. It was, you know, it was again. It was a, you know, he was sure. accused of conspiracy for being tied to the Taliban and Al Qaeda, which is how a more practical you, charge. Yeah. You, but in in the aftermath of nine eleven, how do you allow a plea deal in that situation? I, that's surprising. You should have yes. an immense leeway to get away with whatever you want from a prosecutorial well, standpoint. I wonder if he the was, evidence, yeah. He was one of the first. He was the fir- one of the first people captured. Yes. So we hadn't quite figured out, like, you know, he's he's a U.S. citizen, so you have legal standards that ah, you know, the interrogation yeah. tactics and all sorts of other stuff don't don't hold up in U.S. courts. Well, and evidence too, right? You have to bring evidence, and so maybe it would be difficult to provide evidence for some of that. It's, this is an interesting case, and I think there's more to come. Mm-hmm. But it's time to talk Game of Thrones. Oh God! All right. So if you're a regular listener, you know that over the last couple of weeks, few more than a couple of weeks, we've been exploring what political science can teach us about Game of Thrones. Well, the show has officially ended, and let's just say many were not happy with that ending. <laughs> Uh, In particular, AOC and Senator Elizabeth Warren weighed in on their displeasure with the results, specifically the role the women in the end uh, played in the end of the show. Uh, AOC noted, quote, I feel like we're getting so close to having this ending with women running the world. And then the last two episodes is like, oh, they're too emotional. The end. Uh, we need to get some feminist feminist analysis up in HBO. End of quote. Nick, I loved your reaction to all of that. Uh, Senator Gillibrand, another 2020 presidential candidate, also criticized the finale, remarking that she was, quote, pissed off and particularly upset by the writer's treatment of uh, Danny Targaryen. She's somebody who made sure I said I'm not going with the real name, Nick. (laughs) Uh, She was somebody that said she was going to break the wheel. Her goal was to reform government and make sure it represented the people first. Instead, the show Scribes destroyed who she was and why she wanted to ascend to power. Gillibrand said, I thought it was cheap and I was very unhappy. Phil, there's a large literature on feminism within, within the international relations. Any insights that the subfield can offer to help understand why Game of Thrones writers would choose to empower a man instead of a leading female character? So I don't know anything about Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what makes this the best. But... <laughs> But my, my response would be to say, so yes, within the feminism literature in, in international relations, there are a couple of different schools of thought, one of which is, well, both of them basically agree that uh, men are sort of disproportionately represented in international relations, right? The number of, uh, if you look at heads of state, if you look at representation in Congress and militaries, all sorts of stuff, it's a largely male-dominated thing. And one of two like conclusions that is drawn from that is that either one that really matters because women are fundamentally different than men they're they're less you know aggressive and whatnot or 
Uh, the other approach says essentially that's bullshit, that men and women are, are not any different, and that is why it is ridiculous that men sort of dominate the, the field. Um, so I don't know. I don't know anything about what you're talking about with Game of Thrones, but I think that you know one of the critiques would be that uh, you could you could critique it and saying say that uh, you end up with this male dominated thing. But I think one of you know a feminist might point out that's not all that different from the real world in yes. which men sort of and that can, you can be critical of that, but men end up sort of disproportionately playing these these roles in international politics. That's all I can say because I don't know anything else about dragons. Sure. Nick, Nick, you were upset with the ending. You were upset with this critique. You Here's go. why this whole thing is bullshit. Yeah. So <clears throat> I understand the point from an international relations perspective. Um, the, show it's, the show prior to this season had a woman in charge of every major house on the show. Every major house. They were in charge of pretty much everything on the show for a significant amount of time. Mm -hmm. It was probably the most feminist thing on TV at that point. Until they ruined it, Nick. Until they ruined it. And it's not because they were women, it's because they were in power. Mm. And power corrupts absolutely. Regardless of what you think about what men do with that's, that's their good, power. Nick. That's good. The the thing about equality is it it's the equality of incompetence. It's the 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 pursuit of power is going to make you do dumb things to stay in power. Cersei was a piece of shit who murdered her her own people, tried to murder her own brother. Um what else did she do? A number of other things. Yes. She killed a lot of people. Oh, yeah. D uh, you know, Gillibrand saying that uh, her goal was to reform government and make sure it represented the people uh, first. Danny did that by killing a bunch of slave owners. No, no. Freeing the slaves in one city and allowing them to kill their own masters and put them in charge and then left the continent in chaos. We have no idea what happened to that. And then she comes over to the other side and burns a city to the ground because she was trying to free everybody from, you know, the grip of a tyrant when she became one in one episode. Sansa was realistically the most strategic, conniving, manipulative woman on the show for the past three seasons. And she learned that from a man, realistically. And regardless of where yeah. she got the information from, she took on those traits and wouldn't have been a good ruler. She would have been part of the wheel. She wanted to be the same thing. She would have been a horrible leader or a horrible, um, you know, leader of, of, of the, the Seven Kingdoms. They, they had power and it drove them to do things that any man would have done because any person would have done that. So to say that the show isn't feminist or it failed their feminist characters, no, you're more equal than anybody on TV at that point. If you want to be mad at anybody, be mad at the writers who not only let down the, the women on the show, but let down the men. You turn the, the one main character who had this great redemptive arc Jamie, and he just goes back to the person who abused him his, his entire life, who who was the woman who was killing all of the people. You took John, who was this person who everybody loved, and you just put him on the other <laughs> side of the fucking world for no reason. You took the imp, who was the smartest guy on the television on the on the on the show, and made him give horrible, horrible advice on everything for two seasons. It was just bad writing. I need to interrupt, please. Yeah. Wait. There was a Jamie? There was a Jamie. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and wait, wait, wait. I know this is yeah. a spoiler, but the person who ended up winning wasn't his name like Bert or something? His Bert, <laughs> yes. 
Brian, but Bert, I Ernie, like Bert first of his name, yes. Uh, so yeah. actually, to, to, to combine your two points, Phil, you were talking, so liberal feminism is the argument that men and women are basically equal and it's just a matter of representation. You're, Nick, you're making an argument that the show essentially embraced that, that power was the dynamic. Yes. It, well, there's nothing to do with, with gender, when men and women aren't different, it's just when in positions of power, in anarchy, Correct. this causes a certain type of behavior, Machiavellian behavior. Yes. All right, so so I'm going to change gears just a little bit, but also sticking with the feminist argument. Last night I went to a talk, and uh, the professor that was giving the talk was highlighting the degree to which in major films may, uh, men often dominate the actual speaking parts. And so I thought, this is really interesting. I want to see the data on Game of Thrones. And what we found is, is there's a there's a group that does analysis of men versus women talking in the show. And 75% of the lines in Game of Thrones are delivered by men. Roughly only 25% by women. Mm -hmm. And the last season, season 8, which was supposed to be the victory of women, was only 22% of the lines were delivered by women. To me, that was stunning. Again, bad writing. Right, right. But if you, you count, watch the season, it was just bad. But you count the words. I, you would have. I would have thought it would have been much closer to fifty-fifty. But the actual words spoken was rough. I mean, again, almost eighty percent in the final season were spoken by men mm-hmm. versus women, which makes me think: yes, bad writing. But also, how are you not? I mean, you have some major female lead characters. Let them talk more. Yes, that that made me mad. That data point, Nick. Um, they should have let everybody talk yeah. more in that season. Again, you had these weird, yeah. just 180s on character arcs, and people who should have Ooh. had just these immense oh. kind of farewells were just taken out in, in half an episode. You had the main character, realistically, who had been part of the show since episode one, stabbed through the heart 15 minutes into the episode. Sorry, we should have mentioned spoilers, but either way, yeah, at this it, point, yeah, yeah you're, you're done. You already know that Bert won. Bert, so do you care? <laughs> yeah, and by the way, it wasn't just a man who they put in charge. It was a cripple boy who was also magical and knew everything that was going on everywhere and could like take control of animals and people with his mind. But would just dis- just a guy just disappear for like a whole season? And, right. Like, what's going on with Bert? Well, I don't know. Bring Bert back. He it never didn't... had a lot to say. <laughs> <That's> terrible. <laughs> yeah, I, that all that being said, I I'm not a hater. They should write the show they want to write. I mean. That's it's their choice, but yeah, it was not fulfilling, Nick. Yeah, oh, it's very sad that we're done talking about. I know, this. but this was good. This was a good little thing we had going. On the yes, podcast. yes, absolutely. You want to wrap us up? I do want to wrap yeah. us up. Um, in the spirit of that, it's also that time of year again. Yes, it's somebody's birthday. Two days from now, <laughs> Phil Barker is celebrating his birthday. And last year we we brought this music, so we're we're gonna we're gonna play that again. <laughs> Happy birthday, Phil. <laughs> I totally forgot about this. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> On that note, <laughs> if you guys like the podcast, like our Game of Thrones discussions, or just like the birthday songs that we put on, uh, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, P O L. Um, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Uh, the beers that we try you can find on Untapped on iOS or Android. Just <laughs> look for Barstool Politics. Podcast, uh, iTunes, uh, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, most major podcasting platforms. <laughs> <laughs>
Oh my god. Punch of candles. Um and then we're partnered with Predicted. Sorry, Predicted, that you're at the end of this. Uh, Predicted is a real money political prediction market. Um, we made it through the entire song. Um, stock market for politics, where you can buy and sell shares in future political events. Uh, Barstool Politics listeners uh, use the uh, promo code when opening up a new account, receive up to a $20 match on your first deposit. Um, so open up a $20 account, uh, Predicted will match at $20, giving you $40 to use. Uh, just use the promo link, predicted, uh, predicted.org slash promo slash BarstoolPaul20, uh, and check it out. Sounds good. Anything else, guys? I think we're good. Happy birthday, Phil. Happy birthday, Phil. I think we need, we need to hear that again. Okay. Yeah, as we go out. <laughs> as we go out. It's not obnoxious <laughs> at all. Uh, we'll see you guys next week. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. Yeah.